Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, we talked about the announcement from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about how the Canadian mission in Iraq and Syria is going to change, why it's going to change, if we actually have an answer to that at this point. We heard from Justin Ling from Vice News. And we also uh, talked to a lawyer about uh, Super Bowl commercials on Canadian television next year. For the first time, you'll be able to actually just watch the American feed of the game, ads and all. And 100 Canadians wanted this so badly they wrote letters of complaint to the CRTC. And it worked. It did. We're, uh, we're, we can be heard Monday to Friday, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge. Roger and Rob want to hear from you. 974-8255. That's 974-TALK. Or text them at 770-770. Roger Kincaid. Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning. The day after the big game in which Peyton Manning said, uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to quit yet. I'm just going to drink a bunch of Budweiser and then I'll make a decision. <laughs> I, I want to say this. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl at noon uh, with Peter Miller, who's a lawyer and consultant in the communications industry, talking about you know what uh, the commercials are going to be on TV next year. Maybe we'll get to see that offensive Doritos ad. But I'll tell you something. If Peyton Manning... I uh, think he's uh, going to play in the NFL again. I think that he should just come right out with it and say, yeah, after that, uh, reliant, completely being reliant on my defense to win my last Super Bowl. Well, it's all, yeah, I mean, it, there's an interesting history as to how the rules came to be that a Canadian network can co-opt an American network uh, for certain periods of time. And it just seems odd to me that it's the Super Bowl that necessitates changing this this weird rule. So we're going to get into that later on. Also, a new study looking at how Uber and taxis can coexist. Try telling that to the Toronto taxi drivers who are about to <laughs> go on strike, they say, right around the NBA All-Star game. Uh, let's start uh, this hour with the uh, big news out of Ottawa. We've been uh, expecting this for some time now, and certainly the uh, Liberals campaigned on it, saying that they were going to change the mission in Iraq and Syria. Not that they wanted to end it, but that they wanted to change it. And indeed, they are going to. Specifically, they are going to bring home the CF-18s. Let's uh, listen in. This is a few minutes uh, of the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, making the announcement earlier this morning. I have maintained that our efforts should better reflect what Canada is all about, defending our interests and freedoms alongside our allies and working constructively with local partners to build real solutions for the longer term. Last fall, Canadians gave our government a mandate to implement a policy that is more effective and is better able to capitalize on uniquely Canadian areas of expertise, including our military's training of security forces, the provision of humanitarian assistance and social services, the promotion of diplomacy and good governance, and the rebuilding of infrastructure. The Canadian like Air Force. Our brave and talented members of the Royal Canadian Air Force. We are very proud of you and of your service to your country. It is important to understand that while airstrike operations can be very useful to achieve short-term military and territorial gains, they do not on their own achieve long-term stability for local communities. Canadians learned this lesson firsthand during a very difficult decade in Afghanistan where our forces became expert military trainers renowned around the world. Recognizing this expertise, 
The Canadian Armed Forces will now be allocating more military resources to training Iraqi security forces. We will be supporting and empowering local forces to take their fight directly to ISIL so that, kilometer by kilometer, they can reclaim their homes, their land, and their future. En plus de cela, in addition, we will continue to support surveillance and refueling activities within the coalition. We will have even greater involvement in terms of anti-terrorist measures and improving the chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear security in the region. We will work with our international partners to deliver $840 million in humanitarian assistance over the next three years. This means children, women, men and whole families being provided with water, food, shelter, health care, sanitation and hygiene, protection and education. We will also provide $260 million over the same time frame to build local capacity in communities and countries hosting large numbers of refugees, generous, compassionate countries that have opened their doors to victims of war and whose resources are now being stretched beyond their limits. We will help them address basic needs, maintain and repair infrastructure, promote employment and economic growth, and foster good governance. All of this is in addition to the tens of thousands of refugees Canada is accepting. Third, Canada has earned a distinguished international reputation for diplomacy and building bridges. We must use these skills to do more to achieve a political solution to the crises in Syria and Iraq. All right. Well, there you go. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing a plan. He says better reflects what Canada is all about. Why did you have to end it, though, with that clip where he basically says, hey, if anybody can sit down with ISIS and talk some sense into them, it's us. <laughs> well, so what does this all mean? He uh, says, you know, there's only so much airstrikes can do. But obviously we are playing a key role in helping our partners continue to carry out airstrikes. But we are going to be bringing the planes home. We're going to keep our refueling jets there. I guess if anybody needs fuel, they'll be there. We're going to have surveillance planes. We're going to have more forces on the ground training and painting targets uh, for the jets of other countries to drop bombs. So what does this all mean? Well, let's get uh, Justin Ling into the conversation, parliamentary correspondent for Vice News, who was there asking questions today, trying to get some answers as to why we're doing all of this. Justin, thanks for joining us here. Yeah, I mean, if you thought Peyton Manning's non-answer last night was bad, <laughs> you should have checked out this press conference. Well, it sounds like numerous reporters tried asking the same question numerous ways. And we, in terms of the why, I guess we still don't really have an answer, do we? I mean, that's a question that some of us have given up asking. I mean, uh, you know, kudos to the dogged reporters who kept kind of hitting on this idea of why would we stop bombing. Um, Trudeau has never given an answer. Today, I think maybe it was the closest he ever gave to a concise and clear answer, which was simply, uh, we can't do everything. Uh, of course, uh, we, we probably could both do training and bombing, but we've chosen not to. Uh, you know, the, 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 the plain answer that Trudeau's not willing to say is that he promised during the campaign that he would do the opposite of Stephen Harper when it came to uh, the Islamic State, and that's simply what he's going to do. He's doing the opposite of Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper started bombing. Trudeau's going to stop bombing. Um, it was an inherently political decision, and uh, he's going to follow through on it. Okay, we all know that that's the truth. He's basically just 
decided he'd gone all in that day. He said he would do the opposite of what Harper's doing and then the missile strikes. But is there anything perilous about him saying, hey, look, it's either or and we can't afford to do both. So we've decided we're going to be the army teachers instead of the bombers. I think there's a lot of problems with this. I mean, uh, you know, to put my calmness hat on here, uh, I, I really do think this is a problematic precedent. I mean, if not this mission, then what mission? I mean, we were willing to go into Libya and bomb the hell out of a sitting government um, to, uh, you know, uh, basically do a regime change and help a bunch of rebels we didn't totally understand take power and what would later become a completely fraught and problematic and ineffective and weak government. Here we have um, two completely responsible, useful, um, trustworthy governments, um, to, to varying degrees, I suppose, but in uh, the Kurdistan regional government um, and in the Iraqi uh, government. And we're saying, uh, you know, we're not going to help you augment your military capacity by doing uh, airstrikes. We're simply saying, we don't think this is the right mission for us. And it really begs the question, which mission? This mission is probably the most analogous um, to the 1995 bombing, uh, NATO bombing of uh, the former Yugoslavia, which the liberals will tell you was the greatest mission since sliced bread. So I really cannot understand what military justification there is for this. And I suppose simply there isn't one. Um, we're going to have our special forces guys, our surveillance aircraft, and our refueling aircraft helping out with the bombing mission, but we ourselves are not going to be doing it. We even saw a circumstance uh, just a couple of months ago where our own guys had to be bailed out of a firefight with RCF-18s. Our guys were shot at by uh, the Islamic State, and there was a very hairy situation where numerous uh, of our uh, our Kurdish allies were shot and killed. Our guys were in the uh, you know the heat of all of it, and uh, the coalition aircraft came in and uh, helped them uh, repel the Islamic State ambush. Um, it, it's almost unconscionable to me that the government doesn't find that capacity useful. Well, and just further to that, I mean, it seems to me that that's what we're doing. We're, we're acting as the, the Air Force for the Kurds who don't have an Air Force. That Has anybody thought of, let's ask the Kurds what they need from us, and if we're committed to helping them, that's what we'll do? Well, I can tell you, I personally asked the Kurds. I've sat down with uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister for the Kurdistan Regional Government, uh, Fala Mustafa Bakr, on two different occasions, and asked him about exactly this. And on both occasions, he said the airstrikes are uh, extremely valuable for the Kurdish uh, state. You know, he gave Trudeau a pass in saying, listen, if you don't want to continue the bombing, fine, do something else, give us weapons, give us training, do this other stuff. But he said we would welcome the Trudeau's government, Trudeau government's decision to reverse that decision to stop the bombing. He would welcome it. Um, so, you know, I, I think the implicit conversations that are, that are being had behind, behind closed doors is that uh, the Kurds are none too happy with the fact that the Canadians have pulled out these fighter jets. And, and worth remembering is that we're one of the only countries doing bombing in Syria. This is one of the thorniest parts of the mission. A lot of these states who got into the fight said they're only going to cover Iraq. We said we would go into Syria and help out, uh, you know, moderate forces uh, in the north as well as the Kurds. And if you'll remember, just a, a Less than a year ago, the fight for Kobani was raging in northern Syria. The Kurds were uh, defending, you know, uh, the elderly women and children who were stuck in that town against a very serious onslaught from the Islamic State. Uh, and and then Western fighter jets, not ours at the time, but Western fighter jets were in were uh, uh, essential in that fight, and they actually they still are in defending that town. Uh, and uh, you know, in doing so, we're we're pulling out one of the only uh, air forces that are leading airstrikes in the region. And I think again, that's hugely problematic. Okay, and just further to that, because this is the question. I think you asked today, we're, we're on the side of the Kurds, we want to help the Kurds, we're going to train the Kurds, but are we actually going to arm the Kurds? 
It, the answer seems to be yes. So, and this is maybe what was so frustrating about this press conference from today. I mean, you know, kudos to the Trudeau government uh, for doing a full press conference with four different ministers to explain the mission and then a uh, technical briefing after the fact. I can't underline enough how, how useful that is and how different that is from the previous government who would not have done such a thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, you would ask directly to the prime minister, who are we arming and training here? Which units? Are they the Iraqi government forces? Are they the Kurdish forces? Will there be other militias involved? Are we talking about liberal forces in Syria? And he didn't know the answer to it. We had to wait till later on when the chief of defense staff got on the stage to actually explain some of the nuance of this. And even then, he was vague about it. In the end, he said predominantly, almost exclusively, we're going to be doing uh, training and equipment for the Kurds in northern Iraq, probably around Erbil, which is where we're currently stationed. He said that they would, uh, we would be contributing small arms. So it, actually, the way, what he described later was not really small arms. They, he basically said it would be uh, semi and automatic weapons, mortars, uh, as well as some machine guns, which is exactly what the Kurds have been asking for for some time. Um, and we know that that's actually a pretty extraordinary thing. Thus far in the fight, we have not contributed any weaponry to the Kurds, partially, I think, because the Turkish government has been terrified of Western states uh, arming the Kurds to the teeth in the case that they later turn around and uh, try to reclaim territory in southern Turkey. Um, but what's really interesting here is that we don't know where these weapons are coming from. A lot of other states have given surplus military equipment, equipment that's been sitting in, in warehouses for years. The Canadian government, under the previous regime, said they didn't have any weapons left to give. There was no machine guns, no artillery. We, didn't ha we barely even had a pistol. To, this way or that to, to contribute to the Kurds, suddenly this government's discovered a bunch of mortars and machine guns, and we don't know where they're coming from. Legally, we're not even sure the Canadian government is allowed to sell these weapons to the Kurds right now, so that's a whole other conversation to be had that has completely not been defined yet, and that I think uh, is kind of incumbent on the Liberal government to explain. Um, but this whole mission just kind of feels slapdash. I mean, they've had months and months to prepare for this, and this is the best they can come up with, and, and frankly, I don't think I'm tremendously impressed uh, to do another Super Bowl callback. I basically looked like <laughs> Eli Manning sitting in the stands, uh, just looking kind of uh, downtrodden as his brother, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, cleaned up on the field. All right. Uh, we'll challenge you to toss one more in here before we're, uh, we're all said and done here, <laughs> I'll Justin. see what I can do. Well, you know, listen, I mean, there's, there's been a, a lot of, uh, I guess, mockery of Justin Trudeau for talking about winter coats and, and sleeping bags and whatnot. And in this press conference, he outlines Canada having uh, achieved world-renowned status as trainers, as great military trainers. Now, true though that may be, we've also got world-renowned status as being uh, rather fierce fighters. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not necessarily much opportunity for us to send soldiers in on the ground in, in this situation. But I, I guess, I mean, is this just... Is this more of a military mission or more of a political statement from Justin Trudeau that he's going in on, uh, we're going to train them and we're also going to give uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, humanitarian aid to Lebanon and Jordan? So, so let me first say that, you know, the, the, the financial, humanitarian, security contributions to Jordan, Lebanon and elsewhere – there's no understanding how you know useful that is. Um, you know, securing the region around the Islamic State and kind of creating a firewall around that uh, proto, you know, terrorist state is is quite important. And the previous government recognized that too. And the Canadian government, under both Harper and Trudeau, has contributed significant amounts of money to local policing, anti-radicalization efforts, anti-propaganda efforts. And so today's announcement, I'm sure, is going to be quite welcomed by those governments. And uh, truth be told, I think uh, one of the ways in which the Trudeau government got some of the international partners on board. Is 
is basically by you know paying them off and saying we'll give a lot more money and and, and that's going to kind of make up for our, the end of our bombing campaign. Um, and I, you know I, I think that they, you know that's obviously quite a good thing. But on the flip side, you know you look at this training mission and you really drill down on it. And and you know if the Trudeau government had said we're going to train we're going to train special units in the Iraqi security forces, we're going to look at Christian militias, we're going to find the last vestiges of the the Free Syrian Army in, in Syria and train them. I think there would be an element of saying okay we're expanding our mission. We're finding new avenues in which we're helpful, um, and, and, and that's great. But instead, the Trudeau government chose only to train these forces that we already can rely on. And I think there's a problematic element of that. I mean, overnight, we're going to go from a co- uh, you know a military force that is laying down uh, you know uh, cover for um, both the Iraqi security forces, the Kurds, and and, and moderate uh, units in Syria all across the region to just simply being involved in a very very small geographic area in northern Iraq. And I think that's actually quite problematic. And I, there's also going to be a problem of the law of diminishing returns. We've had seventy some odd trainers in that region for over a year, yeah. and. Tripling that just raises the question of how much more can we possibly do? Is this a symbolic gesture, or is this something that's actually seriously going to augment the ability of these Kurds to uh, fight back against the Islamic State? And remember, we're not the only trainers there. The Americans and, uh, and the British and others have trainers in the region. And you have to start asking the question of, you know, are you simply throwing, um, you know, excess money over something that's not tremendously needed? I mean, those who need the help are the Syri- uh, are the Christian militias, uh, certain Syrian fighting forces and the Iraqi army. I mean, there's lots of problems that arise when you talk about arming or training the Iraqis, but at the end of the day, those are the guys that are going to be cleaning up the bigger parts of uh, central and southern uh, Iraq, not the Kurds. The Kurds have no interest in reclaiming all of the Iraqi uh, territory from ISIS. It's the Iraqi army that has to do that. So at the end of the day, you really pick apart this mission, and you realize that it's a lot smaller than what we were doing before. Um, and this is essentially a, a withdrawal from the, the major military contribution that Kenda was making in the fight against the Islamic State. Well, and, I mean, the Kurds, I mean, the Peshmerga seem to have uh, some level of competence. Uh, do, do they really need us to tell them how to do this? They, they seem to know what they're doing. Well, and, and, and this is, I guess, the point you can make, that, you know, the counterpoint, is that um, these guys do need the help. I mean, you know, they're good fighters, but they're not great fighters. They've, uh, you know, they know how to, uh, you know, climb, climb to the mountains and do certain types of kind of guerrilla warfare and certain types of more traditional warfare, but they're not an extremely professional fighting force in the way we'd expect, um, you, know, you know, an allied uh, military to be. Um, and and they're going to have to face potentially two major offensives in the near future. They may be the ones to go into uh, Iraq which is the de facto capital of the Islamic State, and they may be the ones to uh, do some of the heavy lifting in Mosul. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know actually, you know, that inter- as far as you know, the international um, you know, non-government world knows, we don't know when either of those offenses are going to happen, and we don't know the level of engagement of the Kurds. The Kurds may simply say, we have no interest in going to Raqqa. It's not Kurdish territory. Um, it may be the capital of the Islamic State, but we don't feel like going in and, and losing you know, thousands of our uh, fighters uh, to, to recap retake a, the capital of um, you know, the Islamic State or to retake a major Syrian city, given the fact that as soon as we leave, some other horrible forces like al-Nusra is going to come in and take over it instead. So, you know, there's lots of elements to this mission that are just just, just so unknown, and I, I don't think Canada's um, you know, re- almost over-reliance on the Kurds is, is all that intelligent in the, in, in the broader scheme of things. I mean, um, no one's 
sitting here saying that the Kurds are the solution to the entire thing. The solution to the entire thing is probably the Turkish military, the Jordanian and Lebanese military, the Iraqi military, some fighting force in Syria, as well as, you know, a half dozen other fighting units. Um, and to just look at the Kurds and say, these are our guys, these are the only ones we're going to engage with, I think it's, it's quite problematic. Right. Uh, we're leaving the uh, recon planes and the fuelers there. Is that kind of at the request of uh, other members of the coalition, or do you feel that that was uh, organically Canadian? Uh, no, I, I think that that's probably at the request of others. And, and honestly, if you withdrew those uh, those the, those planes, you'd have almost nothing left. I mean, we're going to have 820 Canadian Forces personnel in the region. If we were to pull those last uh, three planes out, that number would be something like 200. Um, you know, it, it's a it would be a significant walk back to pull those out. So I think um, you know there's an element of the fact that it's just good to keep them there. Both all the three of these planes are incredibly useful. Our allies like them. We like them. Um, they're just uh, actually beneficial to the mission, but it's also if you didn't leave them there, this mission would look like a huge retreat for the Canadian military. Um, and it's worth noting that the two uh, CP-140 Aurora surveillance aircraft um, are top of the line. I mean, the American military is frequently requesting these types of aircraft from Canada simply because they're one of the only uh, manned surveillance planes in the region. Mostly, the Americans and the British rely on drones. We're running one of the only kind of old-timey uh, you know, manned surveillance platforms, which is useful in a lot of circumstances. So you know, on that level, you know, kudos to the Trudeau government for kind of listening to reason on that one and deciding that they wouldn't end the air mission altogether. Um, I think that's, that's, that's probably uh, quite welcome. All right. Well, you got a piece up at uh, vice.com. Uh, folks can read more there. Justin, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Cheers. All right. Justin Ling is the parliamentary correspondent for Vice News. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge. Uh, let's listen in. I mean, the, the defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, as, as Justin Ling said, was also at this news conference and elaborated a bit more on how this is going to change. Uh, but the uh, bottom line is two weeks from now, the, the CF-18s will be coming home. But here's the defense minister uh, explaining this. Given how the threat has evolved and the capacity of local security forces, the greatest needs now are for expanded training and intelligence capability. First, we will triple uh, triple the size of our train, advise, and assist effort in northern Iraq. It is crucial to empower local security forces in order to set the lasting conditions for regional stability. Second, enhanced intelligence capability will help protect our forces in theater as well as those of our coalition and host nation partners. Therefore, we will significantly, significantly increase the resources we dedicate to intelligence both in northern Iraq and theater-wide. Our intelligence capabilities will help the coalition and Iraqi security forces develop a more sophisticated picture of the threat and improve our ability to target, degrade, and defeat ISIL. Our Polaris aerial refueler and Aurora surveillance aircraft will continue their valuable support to coalition operations. We will also be offering the government of Iraq ministerial liaison teams to the Ministry of Defense and Ministry of the Interior. Partnering with Global Affairs, we will offer to expand capacity building efforts with Jordan and Lebanon in order to help prevent the further spread of violent extremism in the region. We will also increase our medical presence to ensure the care and welfare of our deployed personnel, our partners, while providing mentoring to Iraqi security forces. Finally, within two weeks from today, the CF-18 crews will cease operations in theater. Ladies and gentlemen, this plan brings to the fight some of the core strengths of the Canadian Armed Forces, addresses critical needs of the coalition, 
and meets the expectations of Canadians. It also takes out a core strength uh, of the Canadian forces. Um, you know, someone texted earlier to say, hey, wait a second, that was Harper who bombed Libya. Well, yeah, the Liberals supported that. And it was the Liberals who, who bombed Milosevic in the 90s, too. So I think that's a fair question to ask. Well, why not this mission? And if not this mission, what mission? What kind of mission, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, would you send the CF-18s to? If you, and they want to buy us new fighter jets, he says. Okay, well, under what circumstances would you use them? Fair question. When we come back from the news to 1130, we're going to uh, focus in on the Uber debate again. It takes an interesting twist. Uh, at the NBA All-Star Game in Toronto, taxi drivers are planning a massive strike that will uh, lead to significant strife in that city. Uh, meanwhile, out of the Montreal Economic Institute, we have a study of the Australian Uber and taxi model that says, hey, the two can coexist quite peacefully. Let's get to the bottom of that after the news. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Are you like me? No. <laughs> five eight. Next question. What's that Norm McD- or Kevin <laughs> Nealon joke? If you're like me, you're five eight and 170 pounds. Um, look, I watched that game yesterday, and I thought to myself, "Good job, uh, Broncos defense. Good job," because that was the whole story, in my opinion. But anyway, by sounds of it. I mean, I was kind of looking forward to a big shootout. I wanted to see Cam Newton get off and, and you know make some uh, some big plays. He had limited big plays, just an ineffective offense. That's my impression of Dave Rowe. Uh, but I'll tell you what, um, I, I was pretty cognizant of the fact that all of the commercials in the Super Bowl, and we watched the CTV feed, all of the commercials were like for the same stuff, which is shows that are on Crave and things you can buy at the Bell Mobility Store. And I thought, I th- you know, isn't the point of this? That you like, you guys want to go gangbusters selling the game to Canadian sponsors. Like even at halftime. Yeah. Yeah. And where were all the Canadian sponsors lining up to pay big dollars to get in the Super Bowl? I don't know. It's weird. I guess, I mean, Bell has got a big audience. They obviously see some value in marketing their own stuff to, to that big audience. Uh, but yeah, I mean, people who want to see crazy commercials during Super Bowl, you're kind of out of luck. And it's not just the Super Bowl. I mean, those are the rules in Canada. I mean, I was watching American Idol last week and it's on Fox, but. I'm seeing all the commercials for Yes TV. What is Yes TV, by the way? Oh, it's the best. Used it's to be very positive. <laughs> used to be something else, anyway. But that's how it is. So, if a Canadian broadcaster has the rights to a show, if it's simultaneously airing on an American network, they can just place their signal on on that channel, and the ads run on that that channel too. But that's that's going to change, and it's because I guess Canadians are. Angry that we uh, don't get these these big Super Bowl commercials. I'd be surprised to find out just how many. And, and we should clear this up. I believe, and I might have to stand corrected, but YES is uh, New York uh, station channel frequency that originates out of New York carries the Yankees games. <laughs> yes, wait a sec. No, truly. <laughs> well, no, you're right. Yeah. I, that um, this might be different. Yes, <laughs> I suspect. All right. Well, let, let's get to our guest here. This is Peter Miller, who's a lawyer and a consultant in the uh, communications industry and uh, has held senior executive positions with the uh, Canadian Association of Broadcasters, CHUM, uh, and also has an op-ed in the Globe and Mail about this today. Peter, it's our pleasure to have you here today. Hey, good to join you guys. So, first of all, what brought about this change that we'll now see uh, different commercials carried on Super Bowl broadcast in Canada? So just to be clear, the change is only for the Super Bowl. But yeah, if the rule oh, it's only the Super Bowl. It's only the Super oh, okay. Bowl. So if and if the rule stays in place next year, the Super Bowl will not have Canadian ads uh, on the CBS feed. It would just be the U.S. ads. 
So why just the Super Bowl? That seems odd that we need uh, our regulators to to be pressed into action regarding uh, a, a single annual broadcast. Well, that is what a lot of commentators think is very odd, because on the one hand, the CRC has recognized that simultaneous substitution brings in about $300 million in revenue into the Canadian broadcasting system that wouldn't otherwise be there. And it's that revenue that supports everything from uh, you know local news to Canadian drama and all that kind of stuff. Uh, why did they change their mind on this particular show? Well, I guess it's the one of the things that uh, people see more than any other show when they had about 100 complaints. So it took about 100 complaints for the commission to do this. 100 complaints. Yep. <laughs> I love that about, uh, well, I guess that's a real good squeaky wheel argument because the ratings for the Super Bowl, I don't know if they're in yet, but in America it was like 114 million people that watched it. Yeah, and I haven't seen the ratings this year yet. Last year, it was 11 million. And the crazy thing is, on a per capita basis, more Canadians watch the Super Bowl than Americans. <laughs> yeah. Really? Go. We'll figure. Okay, well, go back a bit. But what, why do these rules exist where uh, you know Canadian broadcaster is entitled to co-opt the American signal for, for an hour or half an hour? Uh, it's a good question. It goes way back. I mean, when broadcasting started in Canada, of course, everything was over the air. And uh, literally, the Canadian broadcasting system started where the government said, look, we want Canadian radio stations and then Canadian TV stations in Canada, because otherwise all people will receive is the U.S. stations. And then a whole bunch of decisions were made, including, you know, we created cable and DTH and now telco services. And then in order to protect the rights that broadcasters acquired in Canada, we created this thing called simultaneous substitution. What's interesting is in the U.S. they have exactly the same measures to protect rights, but it's called blackout. So we had this kind of elegant thing where we, as you described earlier, take a, a program and show our version on top of it with Canadian ads. In the U.S., the same thing would just be a blank screen. Okay, it, it makes sense to me that, you know, I mean, in, in the States, for example, if you're putting, if you're showing American Idol and then you cut to commercials, and you might know more about this than I do, sir, but the first commercial is typically like a national spot that's going to run on the broadcast, but then they get into some local inventory. So you'll see a different commercial on the Pittsburgh station than you will on the Los Angeles stations. Is that consistent? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the different kinds of ads that are run, you're right. I, I wouldn't say it's a consistent thing, but I've seen that pattern as well, yeah. All right, but then it stands to reason that with the Super Bowl, they look at it and go, look, we're just going to take all of that inventory. You're not going to get any local stuff. So, I mean, is are they kind of, with the Super Bowl being aired in Canada the way it is, is it sort of like a completely different business setup than what uh, uh, what American broadcast networks deal with on a daily basis anyway? In a way, it's different. In a way, it's not. I mean, of course, you know, in the U.S., the CBS has the rights, and so the deals they do among their affiliates and the and the alternation between local spots and, and national spots is something that they do contractually. Here in Canada, Bell has brought those rights for Canada, and they, as you say, want to use the entire inventory, all the ad avails, for whatever the purpose they have in mind. And as you guys pointed out, some of that was promotion this year, but they, they decide how they want to use it, and I guess their position is, hey, we bought the rights, we paid good money for it, um, we want to be able to take advantage of it. Well, I, yeah, I guess, and I guess in their defense, that it is kind of a, a rather arbitrary policy, uh, that, that it just affects this broadcast and all other rights holders with all other broadcasts can still keep doing things as they've always done. Yeah, and, and this is where the vulnerability is, because Bell has launched an appeal at, 
appeal will be heard sometime this year, and I think that's a big part of their case. I mean, they'll say, look, when you do a law, it's got to be, quote, of general application. It's got to affect everyone kind of equally or at least the same class of programs. Here you just isolate one program. And, you know, remember, Bell bought the rights to these uh, to the Super Bowl for some time, and so they're going to start losing money on something that they used to make a lot of money of as of next year if this decision holds. And I'm surprised they don't find a way to capitalize on this, you know, that during halftime they can run their own commercials and say, you know, stay tuned after the game and we'll show you the other commercials, and then they can sell commercials around those commercials. <laughs> Right. That I, I just I'm surprised that they they didn't capitalize this on some way rather than let it build into what what it's now become, where people are demanding that this has to change. Uh, you know, it, it, I have to say it's bizarre. I mean, I've heard of this thing called the interweb, you know, where you can go and watch <laughs> some of these ads. Um, I don't know. Go figure. I guess people don't want to do that. Uh, and then and then, it, you know, in terms of what Bell could or couldn't do, I mean, to be clear, they'll still have their signal where they could put their ads on it. It's just that if you went to CBS, instead of having the Bell simulcast version, you'd actually get the CBS feed next year with the U.S. ads. And obviously there's a fear that a lot of people will say, oh, let's let's not watch the Bell feed. Let's not watch the CTV feed. Let's switch over to CBS feed. And then uh, Bell will lose a lot of advertising revenue as a result of that. Right. And then there's this other weird thing, too, where like we watched the Pepsi halftime show uh, yesterday, and I'm not sure that uh, Bell Media got a dime out of Pepsi for that, or did they? Well, and you're pointing to, uh, I happen to be a big Coldplay fan, so I enjoyed it, but yeah, you happen to be pointing to one of the big issues of how content is going to be funded going forward. I mean, this embedded advertising that's built in uh, to the content is kind of the future, and so you're absolutely right. Uh, Pepsi would have bought that, and unlike traditional advertising, because it's embedded in the program, they knew they were going to get coverage in Canada, so they kind of got covered Canada for free. Yeah. Uh, that's a you know that's a that's a big trend. And that's an issue for a broadcaster like that. It's kind of like uh, how Beyonce got to ride on Coldplay's coattails yesterday. <laughs> Is that the way you saw it? I thought it was the other way around. <laughs> it might have been, yeah. <laughs> Does it concern the CRTC? Because, I mean, there are rules in Canada about what can be advertised, how it can be advertised. Like prescription drugs is a great example, where in the U.S., and you see these commercials where they got to go through all the side effects, but they're able to advertise what the drugs are. In Canada, prescription drugs are not allowed to say in their ads what they are, but yet Canadians see these American ads all the time, and it sort of undermines our own regulations. Is it your sense that that concerns the CRTC, that we're exposed to U.S. ads in the first place? That issue, that particular issue, has been brought up many times, and, and broadcasters said, look, given the Canadians can watch these U.S. ads, we should relax the regime in, in Canada. Uh, that hasn't happened. Um, but this kind of trend is, is obviously only going to increase, and uh, it, it, it's going to be a big challenge for the system, that's for sure. So, Peter, take us back to square one on this one for a second. It, it, Am I correct in, in figuring that we got about 100 people who wrote to the CRTC and said that it's really important for them that they get to watch American advertisements? Uh, basically, yes. I have to say I didn't read those complaints, but in, in, when the CRTC made its decision, it referred to the 100 complaints that it could receive. And, yes, I suspect they're about that. We hate we hate not being able to see the U.S. ads, uh, and we, we want it to stop. That's just so peculiar to me. We want the right. We want the good commercials, not the bad ones. But I get it. But it's just weird. 
And and you know what? It, it was a particular time, I think, when this came up. But you'll remember uh, at the time the Harper government had taken a great interest in, in, in broadcasting and was pushing the CRC to do so-called pick and pay, right. which is going to come into effect uh, March first, actually. It's very mm-hmm. close. And so I think there was uh, this whole momentum behind the notion of let's just you know respond to c- consumer demand. I think this one they got wrong. I, you know, I don't think 100 people are representative of the views of all Canadians. But I guess that's how, the way they saw it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Peter, appreciate you coming on with us here today and explaining this to us. It's a pleasure. All right, thanks, Peter. Uh, there you go. It's uh, Peter Miller. He's uh, a lawyer and consultant in the communications industry. Has previously held some uh, senior positions with the Canadian Association of Broadcasters uh, and uh, Chum Limited, amongst uh, others. So, yeah, that is odd. I don't know why I was under the impression that it was going to affect uh, all those simulcasts, but it's just the Super Bowl, <laughs> just because 100 people complain because they want to see the ads. That, like Peter said, I mean, you can find on on uh, the internet <laughs> but yeah again i'm surprised that bell doesn't make a bigger deal of trying to get those companies to run those ads on their broadcasts selling those ads or incorporating them somehow uh because i think people are curious and people do tune into the super bowl because they hear the all the hype about oh my god this crazy commercial and it's a way to bring in more viewers yeah. and make those ads more valuable too i yeah i just it it's so peculiar to me, though, like just seeing all of the Bell property ads on the Super Bowl broadcast yesterday, because you got nine million people. So I guess what's the what is it? Is it that you want to control the branding and the messaging that they can see or that you want to make a lot of money? Because they clearly weren't, like, you know, you get into this every Super Bowl. How much is 30 seconds going for? Oh, it's 2.8 million this year or whatever the number is. Right. And that's always this stat that comes up in the run up to Super Bowl. Well, clearly, that's not a dialogue that's happening around the Canadian uh, uh, television of the game, right? Yeah, well, and I didn't see it, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. But I mean, I guess if you assume that there are a lot of people watching your network that don't usually watch your network, that that's a chance to promote yourself in a lot of ways. Promote yourself because the reason why people pay so much to get on the Super Bowl is because they want that exposure because that exposure has value. Bell says, well. And let's pocket that value ourselves. Yeah, rather than sell it for what it's worth, <laughs> we're just going to suck it all up. Uh, we'll take a break right here and come back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. All right, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Now, somebody texted to say that they got the U.S. signal no problem. And I'm just wondering if anyone else can can explain this, because uh, like right now with, with Sean Cable, we get what's typically been the local affiliates that we get are the Spokane channels. Uh, but now with the the time shift that they have on Shaw, you can get like the uh, you know the Rochester Fox and the Detroit CBS and ABC. So I wonder in, if anyone was watching the Detroit CBS through Shaw Cable, whether they got the Detroit CBS broadcast or whether CTV was able to to take over that stream too. Right. And if you can explain that, can you explain to me who thought it was a good idea to put Beyonce and Bruno Mars on the so-called Coldplay halftime show? Because uh, that's when the halftime show started for me. Uh, I was uh, that's to me kind of like saying, "Hey, Carrot Top's performing." Oh, with who? Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> no, I know. And I, look, I didn't I see it. it. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, I was I was on the road yesterday, but um, 
No, because uh, going in, it was, oh, well, you know, I mean, Coldplay is going to be playing at halftime, and now today everyone's talking about Beyonce and Bruno Mars. Because they were awesome. That's why. I don't know what it is about, <laughs> like, the... a huge star. Why didn't they just announce at the outset, oh, my God, Beyonce and Bruno Mars are going to be at halftime? Right. Again, two of the best halftime shows you've ever seen combined in one great halftime show with Coldplay. Like, they didn't... It was so strange. And, and I honestly, I only knew of Coldplay playing it. I didn't know until I got to the Super Bowl party that, oh, yeah, Beyonce and Bruno Mars are going to be in there. So Coldplay, I got no knock on them. I like the band just fine. But they get through, you know, their delightful British rock music, which is synonymous with NFL fandom, if I'm not mistaken. And then all of a sudden, Bruno Mars is on stage singing one of the catchiest, most upbeat, awesome songs in the past year, Uptown Funk. And all I'm thinking of is, if you just put this on a loop, it would be better than anything. It was a, it turned out to be a great halftime show, but. Was it? No, I, well, that's what I, I was just, you know, I've been seeing people in my Facebook feed and on, on Twitter, just, uh, how blown away they were by the halftime show and how, how amazing it was. You know what you do? Here's, here's a great little time waster for you, by the way, cause you're on lunch right now. Uh, go to the Wikipedia page of all the halftime shows and you'll notice in like the early nineties, that's when they decided that they would do something with it. Because they had, like, Michael Jackson in there, right? And that was, like, a killer performance, fireworks everywhere. But every year before that, it was, like, up with people that put the halftime show together. <laughs> and they had the Grambling University Marching Band. I think the Grambling University Marching Band, I think, played, like, eight Super Bowl halftime shows. How boring wow. must that have been? But he, you know, the, the other thing that strikes me as so funny about this conversation, uh, like, if it's Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, and it's, like, in the, you know, the Calgary Flames are playing, and everyone's having their Stanley Cup parties. Who's talking about the ads? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares about the ads. I mean, obviously, you know, if it was Game 7, it was Toronto versus Vancouver, there would be a huge audience in, in Canada, huge ratings. No one would be talking about the ads. Right? Everyone would be talking about, oh, my God, here we go, one game to win it all, to decide the champion. Oh, my God, this is going to be crazy. And I'm sure that, you know, I mean, Sportsnet now, Rogers, would uh, make all kinds of money because it would be a, a huge a huge ratings boon for them. But no one would be having that that conversation. What is it about that event? Are people just so detached from the, it's the game itself? That's because it's one and done. It's not a two-month-long ordeal. It's because it's one and done. And that's why I think the NHL should just take the best team from the East, best team from the West, one game for the Cup. Screw all that revenue. <laughs> hey, we're out of here. We're back tomorrow at uh, 9.30. Danielle Smith is in next. Thanks for listening. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. So, you know you need to go to the dentist, but you're having a tough time fitting your dental appointments into your busy schedule. Deer Valley Dental Care has been offering extended hours.